0: Good morning and welcome to episode 541 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the baseballreference.com play index. I am Ben Lindbergh of grantland.com, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Hi, Ben. Have you any banter before we get to emails?
1: I just wanted to note that I finished your hang up and listen appearance.
0: <laughs> Did I screw it up in the last two minutes?
1: Well, I just wanted to ask you about one thing. When you were talking about all the advantages that Clayton Kershaw has over Pedro Martinez, as far as pitching environment,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, you 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 mentioned a few things that just generally make it easier to be a, a pitcher these days and harder to be a hitter. Mm-hmm. And and I'll quote: uh, the PEDs are out of the game, uh, heat maps, sophisticated advanced scouting, defensive shifts, and and I got stuck on heat maps. Heat maps. <laughs> yeah you 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 really think that heat maps are are the big the big advance for for (laughs) pitching
0: they're an advance right there was a there was a joe madden quote yesterday i think it was about how just all the analytics advances have favored pitching and defense more so than than offense i mean heat maps are just a way of presenting that information to people so it's and who knows if they're even paying that much attention? So, so no, I would not put <laughs> heat maps up there with
1: with, with the getting other <laughs> rid of steroids and having shifts on every third play. Not
0: quite on the same level,
1: but it's, fair enough. It's fair one enough. of them. Fair enough. All right, <laughs> that's all my banter.
0: Okay, so then we will dive right into the emails. So this question comes from Kyle, who says, "I wanted to ask a broader question based on your discussion of umpiring and replays in episode 539." Baseball has inadvertently introduced a change in the philosophy of umpiring with added replay. Baseball used to follow a formalism thought, much like the legal philosophy, where the truth itself does not matter, but only the following of established principles and rules. For example, not all evidence is admissible in court and people will get off on procedural technicalities. In baseball, not all evidence has historically been used to make calls. As umpire Bill Clem famously put it, it ain't nothing till I call it. Now with the introduction of replay, MLB is theoretically interested less in a formalism philosophy but more in obtaining the truth. Therefore, they should be using every tool at their disposal to achieve this, but as mentioned in the earlier podcast, they still are not, as umpires are not allowed to view the stadium scoreboards for replay. MLB seems to be stuck in between philosophies, not understanding what direction they are headed. My question then is, which do you think baseball should be more concerned with, the traditional formalism method of umpiring? or a newer method of using every tool available to discover the true outcome of a play.
1: That's a very well put email. It is. I feel like uh, that's it's one of our- You a whole
0: article out of that.
1: Yeah, it's one of our more nicely written emails. We've had some very nice ones, mm-hmm. many. I don't want to <laughs> shortchange any of the great emails you have. That's a very good one. Yes. I had uh, my dad, it, For when I was growing up, um, this was this big linguistic argument in my household when we would watch a play and then i would watch the replay and i'd say he was out or that was a strike and my dad would say no it's not that there, there no there is no there is no truth existent except what the umpire calls <laughs> so what the umpire calls is what it is you can say he beat the throw you could say that pitch caught the plate but you cannot say it was a strike because a strike exists even if there is a rule book definition in fact the Ah, uh, the game itself has made it very clear through precedent and action that um, the rulebook is itself only a guide, and that the umpire is the final final arbiter. Uh, which is why I, for instance, uh, have have argued that is the if they're not going to try to get the strike zone right, there should be no strike zone. Umpires should should merely call what they think is is an appropriate pitch, yeah. a strike. S- haven't really seen that argument catch on. I, I know it's, it is interesting, and I'm not, being, I'm not being sarcastic when I say this. I actually think that's maybe my strongest argument. I, I think I stand by that more than any other weird thing I've ever written or said <laughs> uh-huh. on this podcast. I think it's, I, I think it's a, it would make the game better. It's a great argument, but I don't need to rehash that. But So Kyle, Kyle I think, mm-hmm. quite correctly gets to the problem, which is that it's, it's in the in-between. If you think that we're in this forever, if we're going to be in the in-between forever... Uh, then you would say it's a flaw. If you think, though, that change comes in stages and that it requires compromise from different uh, interests and that it might not, that this whole replay system might not have gone as well if it hadn't been done in a spirit of semi-compromise and in a kind of gradual stage-based um, advance, then I forget how I started the sentence, but uh, I, that's part probably why it it's working so well because... It didn't seem quite so radical. It seemed like it was being led by um, you know, conservative people who were proceeding cautiously and were not going to dictate every single thing had to change immediately, but that they would see how these things worked, starting with the home runs, and then see how other things worked while keeping some limits in place. And I think that probably it's, it's very safe to assume that all of these things that we've identified as problems this year uh, will not be problems in 20 years. many of them will be problems next year. a few of them will be problems in five years a, a handful maybe as far as 10 years but in tw- in it, certainly within 20 years, probably within 10, all of the things all of the inconsistencies, all the things that seem weird will have been sorted out there, it is very clear which direction the this is uh, this is moving mm-hmm. and uh, you know e- expecting it to be exactly right and a hundred percent. Uh, on the first move uh, is is probably a bit greedy. Yes,
0: I completely agree, but there's no going back and any any changes from here on out will probably be to push the system closer to the objective truth existing independent of the umpire position. Yeah. okay. This question just came in after we started recording from Eric Hartman, who says, How big a disadvantage does the winner of the wildcard game have in the rest of the playoffs? Very small sample size, but I don't believe they've ever won a series. How many years of data would we need before we could be reasonably confident in any claim? So this is the suggestion that the team in the wildcard game... Maybe had to use its best pitcher or would have tried to use its best pitcher if at all possible. And that pitcher would not be able to go until a few games into the division series. Maybe they've cleaned out their bullpen to get through that game. Maybe they're tired because Uh, they haven't uh, had the day off.
1: Probably not that, though. There's a day off before and a day off after, right?
0: Mm -hmm. True. But they would have had to travel perhaps back and forth across the country during that time when the other teams were... Using that time, however, they would have liked to use it. So, how many years would we need before we could be confident in any observed tendency toward a, a wild card team doing worse than we would expect in the division series?
1: Um, before I, before we answer that, the the initial question was how much of a disadvantage is it?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And the main the travel is definitely a thing. The fact that they're already probably an inferior team is a disadvantage, of course, not mm-hmm. related to the structure of the playoffs, but just related to them being worse. Um, but basically, we're talking about the starting pitcher, right?
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: that's. I mean, when we talk about the disadvantage, that's probably 90% of what we talk about, and it mm-hmm. maybe should be 95% of what we talk about. Mm-hmm. And so to answer that question, though, it's not just how much of a disadvantage is it to uh, go to Clayton Kershaw once instead of twice in a postseason series because, for starters, as we've talked about, only about half of the teams in that postseason, in that coin flip game, are going to be able to use their ace. Otherwise, they they might have used them on Sunday or Saturday mm-hmm. and not be able to use them anyway. Um, and so you figure, well, okay, so for maybe roughly half the teams... We're not even talking about losing their ace. We're talking about them losing their their number two starter, maybe their number three starter. And and those guys wouldn't have intended to go twice in a five-game series anyway. So already you would cut the disadvantage for half the teams. So then you have the other half, the other half who had to use Clayton Kershaw to get to the full series. And so then you have to think, well, what percentage of division series go five games? Because Mm -hmm. in any series that's determined in four games or fewer – you're either only going to use your ace once, as it is, or you're going to pitch him on short rest in game four, which the position of this podcast is generally That's no advantage at all. So I don't know how many division series go five games. I was trying to frantically find it in an easily scannable format, and I didn't. Mm-hmm. But what would, what would you guess, 60%? Yeah,
0: sounds reasonable.
1: So you're talking about, we'll say 60% of teams go... To a five game series, 60% of the time. So 36%. So you basically have one in three times this will matter to your team. And then you're talking about a difference of probably a run and a half between your, well, maybe. You're going to go two, three, uh, in this format, you'll go two, three, one, four, two instead of one, two, three, four, one. So what? The difference between your ace and your number two is maybe on average, a half a run, maybe mm-hmm. three-quarters of a run. at the Maybe. So we'll say three-quarters of a run to be generous. So we're talking about three-quarters of a run, one-third of the time. How often does three-quarters of a run determine a game? Less than half the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's probably not that much of a disadvantage. It's, I don't know, 5%?
0: So we'd need we'd need the century or so?
1: It might. Uh, and, and, of course, if you do go five games, and you find that you don't have your ace available, and you have to go with your number two, well, even if you win that game, which you're going to win it a lot of the time, you now have your ace ready to go in game one of the LCS, Mm -hmm. instead of having to use your ace in game five, and then he can't maybe come back until game three of the LCS, so if you make it, it could actually give you back some percentage of the five percent that you've already given up, so as far as your World Series odds, it could end up being a couple percent at most I would guess though that your chances are uh, that the effect is is actually rather small less small than uh the world gives attention to it less small than maybe teams give attention to it and less small than this very podcast has in the past <laughs> uh, assigned to it
0: mm-hmm. well in the past
1: we've made I think in the past we've made too big a deal out of it and, and walking through that has made me see the error. it's the
0: playoffs this is when we make a big deal out of tiny tiny things so we've got to talk about something mm. This question comes from Ricky Who says, hi Dan and Ben Close for oh, every God, Dan and Brad, jeez <laughs> Hi Dan and Ben For every organization, there are 30 different ways To develop prospects The two main ways are double A to the majors The other is double A AA to triple A And then the majors The Marlins mainly do double A to the majors Most notably with Stanton and Yelich. Which way is the most effective to bring up a player In your opinion? I don't have an answer to this exactly, but I have something that I wanted to mention that is related, because I had thought about writing something about this earlier this month, and maybe I will, because there had been some speculation that teams were bringing up players faster, or that they weren't as prepared when they made the majors, which seemed to be completely not the case heading into this season, and... There does seem to have been a change in how AA and AAA are regarded, at least. People talk about AA more often now, I think, as as a prospect-rich league, that some top prospects skip on the way to the majors, as Ricky suggests, and AAA is kind of this depressing place where guys who have already washed out of the majors go and they're bitter because they're not in the majors And some teams like to leapfrog the prospects past that atmosphere entirely. But I was interested in whether the relative strength of those leagues has changed significantly over the past few years. And I sort of suspected that maybe it had. But I emailed Dan Samborski of ESPN, the creator of the Zips projection system. And he has league strengths for for the various minor league levels and major league level Going back to the mid-70s or so, and I asked him whether there had been a change AA relative to AAA, and and both of them relative to the majors, and according to his numbers, which are based on league changers, guys who go from one league to the next, and how they do after being promoted, and how much of their stats, their production level at the lower league they retain at the higher league, he found that there hasn't really been any recent decline or any recent change that... All of the change that he has kind of comes from a seven to eight year period starting in 1996 or so, that before that time, from the mid-70s to, say, the mid-90s, AAA was about 86% of the majors in terms of difficulty level, and then over this seven to eight year period from the mid-90s to early 2000s, it declined to about 80%. And AA is in the mid-70s. So it's actually close. Double A AA and AAA are close. They've gotten closer since, you know, two decades ago, but it seems like they haven't actually gotten closer in recent years. But uh, Dan speculated that maybe that decline at that point, and I will quote his working theory, is that teams are doing a better job. Of giving minor league performers chances And that the increased viability of Japan As a home for some of those first tier Double layers that don't end up in the majors Has weakened that top level of Triple A play which seems plausible So the takeaway I suppose is that double A And triple A are not actually All that different one of them has One more A but other than that As as a percentage Of the majors triple A Is about 80% and Double A is in the mid 70s somewhere So if you do skip Triple A for whatever reason Whether it's the attitude of your triple A Team or maybe you Don't feel that your AAA Coaching staff is well suited to that Particular player or maybe the Environment the atmosphere maybe it's A harsh pitchers Park or hitters park and you Want the prospect to avoid that for some Reason doesn't seem like you're Really sabotaging the prospect either way, at least based on the relative leak strength.
1: Very interesting. Yeah,
0: maybe I will write about it. I
1: probably should yeah. write about it. If you do, you should mention that it's uh, even if the difference isn't that different in terms of overall quality, uh, the conventional wisdom is that the difference in style is different, that you see a lot more uh, kind of advanced veteran pitchers who have uh-huh. a plan of what to do, and they, might, they don't have the same stuff or velocity, and they might suck, generally speaking, uh, but it's a different kind of a challenge.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, that is that is probably worth mentioning. Okay, this question comes from Stephen, who says, I was intrigued by Jake Arrieta's quotation in this article, and it, he links to Rocco DiMaro's recent article for BP, where he interviewed a bunch of players about what the second hardest thing to do is in baseball. And Arrieta said that moving to the NL and having to hit has influenced his pitch selection while pitching. The conventional wisdom with which Steven agrees is that pitching in the NL is easier because you get the pitcher instead of the DH. Is it possible that a pitcher can learn enough from his own plate appearances that he can improve his approach on the mound? Seems like something that I would want to ask actual pitchers, but I would think that most pitchers are probably so overwhelmed at the plate that Everything works against them, so I, I don't know that they would even have the capacity to tell what would get an actual major league hitter out. I mean, when you're a when you're a pitcher and you have a hard time hitting a fastball down the middle, I don't know that you get that great a feel from your own struggles that would inform how to pitch an actual professional hitter. But I could be wrong.
1: Yeah, the uh, the challenge that most of us face. If we tried to hit a major league pitcher, it would be very. It'd be like trying to compare. I don't know. I mean, major league hitters, you think are sort of kind of seeing baseballs like Neo sees things, right? I mean, yes. compared to mere mortals, they're seeing things uh, in such a different sort of slowed down way that none of us can even really compare to. So, if you weren't a hitter, it does seem like it would be difficult to draw a lot of lessons. And you're also not going to be worked in the same way that a hitter would be worked and would get used to being worked. Um, I will though say that, um, Sean Doolittle, I'm trying to find it. When I wrote about Sean Doolittle for ESPN, the magazine many years ago, uh, he talked about how, how he thought he had an advantage over, um, other pitchers because he knew from being, uh, you know, a, a, a legitimate hitting prospect and having, Batted hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times against high-level pitching, he knew how hard it was. He knew how simple, a lot of times, uh, how effective a simple plan uh, could be against those guys, uh, because he was one of those guys. And I'm trying to. Oh yeah, I here's his quote. I'm not sure pitchers understand how difficult hitting is when you really can put together a two or three pitch sequence and execute it. They don't have a chance. He spoke more about that, but that's the the quote that I used from him. But. The difference is that Doolittle was a hitter. Doolittle uh, was talking about the advantage that he got from having actually lived in the world of hitters as a hitter uh, and having had that perspective. I don't know that you, just walking into the world of hitters makes you live as a hitter.
0: Mm-hmm. Angry. Okay, play index?
1: Yeah, sure. So I have a question for you, and I don't know your answer to this. I'm hoping that your answer will, will help Drive the narrative of this play index. But uh, it has been noted, Ben, has it not, that uh, despite the increase of shifts, which seem to really do a lot to suppress um, to suppress uh, offense and to catch baseballs that are hit, mm-hmm. it has been noted that nonetheless, BABIP league-wide is not down. BABIP, yeah. in fact, is, is relatively high for modern times and seems to be inching even higher. It's... Uh, 299 this year, which is up from 297 last year, up from 295 in 2011. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, what is your hypothesis for why this is?
0: It's perplexing. It. it, uh, I've seen. I remember seeing some tweets from Mike Fast, formerly of BP and currently of the Astros, talking about how big an effect. It would need to produce for us even to see it in the league-wide numbers And he seemed to be suggesting that it would just have to be even bigger than it is There would have to be more shifts than there are currently A higher percentage of plays would have to involve shifts And more balls would have to be hit to that side of the field Or there'd have to be an even bigger difference between shift BABIP and non-shift BABIP For it to show up in the league numbers which are based on many many thousands of batted balls and i guess that's persuasive or at least that that other factors could be hiding it somehow that there could be some corresponding factor that is acting to increase babip that would counteract the decreased babip and i don't know what that would be but i I Assume that that would be it. I'm also open to the idea that maybe teams aren't shifting as well as they think they are It's possible when you look at the the league-wide numbers from the stat providers like BIS and Inside Edge There's almost always a pretty big gap between shift BABIP and non-shift babbitt for all of the Either when they show it on a team level or when they just show individual players who get shifted a lot There certainly seems to be an effect there. It's It's possible that teams are shifting a suboptimal rate, right? That some of them are shifting too much or that they're shifting in an inefficient way and that they are therefore allowing some hits that they're not accounting for somehow. So that's possible. But I don't have a concrete answer that I am confident in.
1: You did not give the answer I was hoping you would give and that that I was expecting you would give. I thought the answer you would give is that baseball players... Hitters hit the ball harder these days. That because of particularly because they um, because strikeouts high strikeout rates tend to correlate uh-huh. to high BABIPs because you're really putting a lot more into the swing and maybe waiting for your pitch a lot more. Yep. That uh, when you do hit the ball, it goes a lot harder. And so or
0: even because pitchers are presumably pitching harder.
1: Yeah, and pitchers are also pitching harder. Exactly. So yeah, that's uh,
0: right. That's a and good s- example of of what I suggested that there could be some other yeah. factor, and, and oh that's, yeah, and then, uh, that one yeah, makes yeah. sense.
1: Sure, you said that. <laughs> uh, so if this were true, this this hypothesis would would suggest that in fact uh, the shift is working to keep Babbitts down. Uh, Babbitts would otherwise be out of control. Yeah. Okay. So play index. Um, I a couple years ago, two years ago, in fact. I wrote a piece about Ryan Howard and um, whether Ryan Howard is, is actually clutch uh, and whether the whole narrative of him driving in runs because he's so clutchy-clutch uh, is actually true, not because he's uh, got a great heart, uh, but because when runners are on base, defenses can't shift against him, and when they can't shift against him, he's a monster. He's incredible. And it's when they can shift that he becomes very poor at hitting. And so what I did is I looked at every single base state, uh, base runner state, how many outs and how many runners were on. I looked uh, to see whether the defense was shifting on him in that plate appearance. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I concluded that uh, that was a good, if I found an example of a shift or a non-shift, I went ahead and assumed that that was consistent across the league. This was two years ago. Uh, I don't know if it was consistent across the league, but that gave me a, a general idea of whether teams shifted him in that situation. And then I, So then I broke those up into three categories. Runners on with a shift, runners on without a shift, and then no runners on in which there is a shift. And then I looked to see whether that explained the difference. And it basically did. When nobody's on, his BABIP sucks. And when runners are on base and there's no shift, uh, his BABIP is incredible. And mm-hmm. when runners are on base and there is a shift because in some cases they can shift. If there's like a runner on first, for instance, they still shift. In the runners on base examples, with a shift, his Babbitt was not very good. So it seemed that the shift explained all, or almost all. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to apply that to the league and see whether that's the reason that BABF's, uh not going up. If, in fact, you broke it down to these base out states where a shift can't be done, whether you would see Babbitt go way way up mm-hmm. pretty good play index huh very good should write it should have written about it yeah wasting it
0: <laughs> yeah we're both giving away good material for free here
1: so um so I'm going to give you a baseline BABIP overall this year is 299 going back to 1988 there are 27 seasons that is the 10th highest so 10th highest BABIP out of 27 that is our baseline 10th mm-hmm. of 27. Okay. Okay. So first off, very, uh, so I went to Play Index. I went to the team splits section of Play Index. One of the options you can do is all MLB teams grouped together. Uh Um, So then that gives you the league split for any split. And I did uh, each year, I sorted, uh, I I grouped them by year since 1988. Um, And I just looked at Babip, nothing else, Babip. Uh, in each of these base out states, so Babbitt overall tenth out of 27. Now, simple simple ones first. Nobody on, 11th out of 27, and runners on, 10th out of 27. So that's mm. completely unchanged. Yes. So having runners on does not change our math at all, or does not change our results at all. Okay. So then, if I if I use the Ryan Howard experience to look at when teams are more prone to shift and when they're not, I looked at the uh, cases where they can not do a shift with runners on base. So these are the, these are the instances, basically, where there's no shift.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so runners on first and second, there's hardly ever a shift with runners on first and second. Uh, 293, 10th out of 27. Huh. Runners on second and third, hardly ever a shift. 13th out of 27. Very, very, I mean, that's nothing. Base is loaded seventh out of 27 so those two you might as well just cancel them out uh, and runners on first and third with none out third out of 27 so that sounds interesting but mm-hmm. it's a, it's it's only 800 batted balls so then I looked at first and third with one out and it's 21st out of 27. <laughs> okay basically if there's runners on first and third and two outs you'll usually see a shift or you uh, you o- sorry you often will see a shift you mm-hmm. can see a shift but when there's runners on first and third, with less than one out, you you often you you might not. And so I, um, with runners on first and third and less than two out, it's essentially uh, no different. So that hypothesis completely sputtered. Even in situations when there is no shift on, the league's BABIP is essentially not higher or lower than it is overall. So uh-huh. so now I'm going very, to a very good. Hi- we had a great hypothesis. I'm going to because... retract
0: my attempt to claim that that was my theory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> so I don't. So we're we are back to the drawing board. We're going to have to figure out why. But next time you will hear that. You will probably hear this. Uh, this theory that Ben and I both proposed at some point. And you can tell that person. They play indexed it and it didn't work.
0: Debunked. They can debunk it themselves if they use the coupon code BP. To sign up for the Play Index and get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. Michael K. citing the Play Index on air, on yes. Did not drop a coupon code reference, but he still mentioned the Play Index.
1: Uh-huh, yeah. I really wanted to end that Play Index with, it's a wrap.
0: <laughs> you just did, I guess. Remember,
1: it's a wrap. Remember, it's a rap?
0: Sure. Do you? We, we never said it to wrap, but it, it has been said.
1: You remember the Brandon Phillips?
0: Oh, right, the C-Trent. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 forgot that one.
1: Anyway, I couldn't remember it. I had to Google it. <laughs> so I couldn't the play index with It's a Wrap.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Well. Okay, this question comes from Zach
0: in Los Angeles. So this question is particularly relevant to him. He says, the two teams in L.A. seem to be opposites of sorts, especially their pitching. The Angels have made changes to their bullpen and now have one of the best bullpens in the game, but their starting pitching is really quite questionable. Weaver looks okay, Shoemaker has been great but is now hurt, CJ Wilson is terribly inconsistent, Santiago even more so, Richards and Skaggs done for the season. On the other hand, the Dodgers have a good rotation, assuming they get healthier, Kershaw, Granke, maybe Ryu, Heron, but their bullpen is bad and seems to be getting worse. So my question is, going into the playoffs, would you rather have the Angels pitching or the Dodgers pitching, and why?
1: We're, I mean, the answer that uh, I know what your answer is going to be. You know what my answer is going to be. But let's re- get, the answer is going to be you take the starting because we don't actually. I mean, bullpen over the course of a short series is very unreliable. It's too small a sample. Who knows what kind of bullpen you're going to get from your bullpen, right? That would have been your answer. Sure, probably. Okay, but let's rephrase, though. Let's assume you get a great performance out of your starters and a slightly below average we'll call it a 40th percentile performance from your bullpen or you get a 40th percentile performance from your rotation but a great performance from your bullpen which team do you think is more likely to win
0: well i hate to say it depends but it depends on how willing the manager is to go to the bullpen right if if he's going to stick with the underperforming starters as opposed to just having a quick hook and going to the bullpen guys then then that's not making the most of that advantage if you have a manager who's willing to yank starters early and do the bullpen thing that that we're always talking about when the when the playoffs roll around and minimizing the the times-through-the-order effect and getting the fresh arm in there inning after inning, then I think I would probably go with that one.
1: Well, they certainly have a shorter hook in the postseason. Managers generally uh, have a much shorter hook in the postseason, it Mm -hmm. it seems to me. The question is whether it's short enough. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if it is, but I could see the case for either one. I think at this point I'd rather have the Dodgers. Uh, Yeah, I'd rather have the Dodgers.
0: Yes, I would too. But it'll be interesting to see what the Angels do with I'm not their saying pitching. I would
1: rather, yeah, and I'm not saying I would rather be the Dodgers because I would rather have the Angels' right offense. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, we will answer this question from Nicholas who says, I wanted to know if you had to choose between drafting Chipper, Chipper Jones, and drafting Jeter, knowing everything about their career and numbers ahead of time, which would you choose? Assume that they would stay in the organization their entire career and you could build your club around them. Replacement variables aside, i.e. depth in that particular position and replacement variety in the particular position. Uh, and that's that's the question. <laughs> so Chipper or Jeter?
1: I, uh, this, this is tough. Yeah. I find this to be a very challenging question.
0: Because of off-the-field considerations if we were talking about purely as players would that make it an easier decision or an easy decision or still well, still tough
1: I think it's conceivable that Jeter's ability to play shortstop badly mm-hmm. is both an underrated aspect of his value that it doesn't quite capture his value to a team I mean it is you know that I don't I, I don't have any evidence of this but it does seem conceivable that the Yankees are glad that they had shortstop locked up for all those years, even if they had to put up with bad demons. And And if you go back and look at, um, uh, I think Gary, I think it was Gary Huckabay. I was reading some very old pieces uh, on the site recently about Jeter's defense. And, and th- this was very early on in his career. And, and Huckabay seems to have really been uh, one of the, the earliest voices putting you know pretty advanced analysis on Jeter's defense and he would always say in it that Jeter is terrible he was you know he's the worst everybody you know hates him for saying it but it's true but also that that's not to say that the Yankees should move him that he's you know that he's still worth playing there and i don't know maybe the years since we've learned enough about positional Replace uh, positional adjustments that maybe we no longer think that's true, but it does seem conceivable that there are a few extra wins in Jeter's career simply from a team building perspective, because as everybody always says, first thing when you ask that who do you start a franchise question with, uh, mm-hmm. who who do you start a franchise with question, they always say, well, you know, you got to start with somebody at the middle, you got to start with a right. shortstop or a center fielder, but probably a shortstop. Mm-hmm. And Jeter is a shortstop, so you there are there is a there is a line of thinking that says you start with the shortstop. Now you could also make the case that Jeter's uh, the fact that you're stuck with Jeter at shortstop for all those years is actually like terrible. That they <laughs> yeah. just having just having a guy who was blocking A Rod from shortstop. Not only did it not only does Jeter's war fail to live up to Chippers because he was adding all these negative runs.
0: Right, but, and if you look but at he the
1: hurt, he hurt A-Rod's war.
0: Uh huh, possible. And if if you look at the career wars and warps, Chipper outpaces Jeter by somewhere between ten and twenty wins above replacement, depending on the stat. Career wise.
1: Yes. Yes. There's also though. There's also the postseason thing. So true. Uh, the gap between them. Jeter was better. I think Jeter was better in the postseason than in the regular season. Chipper was worse in the postseason than the regular season, which everybody in history is because they're facing harder competition except for Jeter. Jeter's like the only guy whose OPS went up in the postseason. Um, So it closes the gap, and so then that closes the gap as hitters, and then you might argue that Jeter's ability to play shortstop and run the bases uh, made him a you know a better player in the postseason. I would argue. I, I don't know. We don't have postseason wars, but I would guess that Jeter's WAR per you know X number of games was higher than Chippers was. Um, mm-hmm. And so, how much? I mean, the postseason is significantly, significantly more valuable than mm-hmm. the regular season. So uh, that might close a you know a decent portion of the gap there. I don't sure. think either one. I don't think either one necessarily gets any benefit for. We don't know enough to say either one gets any benefit for Clubhouse stuff. They both had very good reputations for that, um, and so I would call that a, a wash. I don't know about the marketing value of either one. Yeah, especially if you took Jeter out of New York or if right. you put Chipper in New York. Yes. then who really? Who knows what that would do to each of them?
0: Yeah, if it's neutral site and neutral team. And you assume that a lot of Jeter's marquee value comes from playing on great teams and being on a dynasty, and obviously he was part of that. But there was there were many other parts of that, and he was in the biggest media market at the time. So yeah, if you moved if you moved him to Atlanta during the years when Chipper was in Atlanta, maybe he doesn't have a significantly higher profile than Chipper did.
1: I um, Jeter also uh you could this can go either way but Jeter played a lot more game uh, he he was available like uh-huh. Chipper had the, the sort of injury years and so you could say oh well it just puts his his war lead in even starker contrast because on a on a rate basis he was even he was even that much better than Jeter or you could say well if nothing else i mean Jeter was there every day for you know for, with 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 the uh, 2003 exception he was there every day for like you know 16 years uh, and that has a certain amount of value in building a roster. I, I think I would take Chipper by a very, very, very uh, an, an invisible margin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we
0: might even be overselling the playing time angle. I mean, if you look at just games played, I mean, Jeter played 20 seasons. Chipper played 19. The games played gap between them is about 250. Not even quite. Not even quite 250. And Chipper played one season less um, And I mean he had those Had those injury years toward the end But in his prime And really until he was In his early 30s He was playing 150 plus games every year So Cheater a, a bit more durable I suppose but not, not a huge amount I guess yeah, I guess I would probably side with you It's, it's close I don't think the gap is as big as the career wars or warps would suggest, but I think I'd probably still give Chipper the edge.
1: Yeah, it just uh, it really comes down to how much you credit Jeter with the postseason success, and um, if you think that there's not a huge difference between what the what each of them offers and and did in the postseason, then mm-hmm. yeah, I don't think Jeter can close that gap. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, so that's it for today. We have already told you to subscribe to the Play Index, but please do so. Coupon code BP. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash group effectively wild. Send us emails for next Wednesday at podcast at We would appreciate your reviews and ratings and subscriptions to the podcast and iTunes, and we will have another show tomorrow.